Happy Father's Day. There we go. Um, let, me, let me mention this, uh, this wonderful quote I read this morning from a scholar. It goes like this, fatherlessness is the root issue beneath so many ills that plague society today. A child who grows up without a father in the home is more likely to experience homelessness, commit crime, serve time in prison, abuse drugs, drop out of school, be obese, suffer from poverty, and so much more. The United States has the highest share of single parenting in the world. Now, with that said, if you are a single parent, God will give you grace to raise those kids. God is a father to the fatherless. But God's plan is for husbands and wives to raise those kids together, and fathers play a hugely significant role in raising kids, which leads to strong, healthy societies. So dads, I know as the father of five that fathering is challenging, uh, discouraging, and often frustrating, but very rewarding too. So thanks for all that you do uh, to raise those kids. And can we thank the dads for a moment here? Let's pray once again. Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit liberally. As the word of God is preached this morning, I'm very, very aware of my great need for help this morning, like I am every Sunday. We confess that nothing good will happen in anyone's hearts or lives if the spirit of God does not work with and through the word this morning to magnify the person and work of Jesus Christ. So help to that end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When you drive south on Interstate 15, you drive through Montana, Idaho, and Utah. More importantly, you drive across the Continental Divide, not once, but twice, the way the road kind of winds and zigs through the mountains. The Continental Divide is created by this massive pile of rocks known as the Rocky Mountains. And they soar 14,000 feet above sea level. They stretch 3,000 miles from British Columbia down to New Mexico. The Continental Divide is a very important geographic feature because it divides our continent into two distinct regions. All the water west of the Continental Divide flows to the Pacific, and all the water east flows into the Atlantic. This huge stretch of mountains is a significant dividing force in our continent. In a similar sense, Jesus Christ is the continental divide of humanity. He divides humanity into several distinct groups. But don't just take my word for it. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 12, 51 and following. He says this, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now this brings us to the end of John 7. So far in John, Jesus Christ has said several very pr provocative, controversial things. As a result, the crowd is very divided about how to respond to Jesus. 
And in our text this morning, John 7, 40 to 52, we see three distinct groups. Some rejected Jesus, some respected Jesus, and some accepted Jesus. Jesus always, always, always divides humanity if he's preached biblically and accurately. And the question is, which group are you in this morning? Again, some rejected him, some respected him, and some accepted him. First group, some rejected Jesus. Why? Why do some people reject Jesus? Well, Jesus was rejected because of ignorance. Look with me at John 7, 40 and following. When they heard these words, now the words they're referring to there are the words just spoken by Jesus, and Jesus said very boldly, I am the only source of living water that will satisfy your soul. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So again, Christ has just finished saying some very provocative things, and he's dividing the crowd as a result. Some think he's a prophet. Others think that he's the Christ. But then the third group thinks, no, he can't be the Christ, because we all know from the Old Testament that the Christ, or the Messiah, the anointed one, must come from the line of David and must also be born in Bethlehem. This is ironic, because Jesus meets both those criteria perfectly. But the crowd is ignorant of the facts. They don't understand all the details, and they're not willing at this point to explore the claims of Jesus, which is a huge mistake. They are comfortable in their ignorance of who he really is, and they won't do the research. Now, imagine walking to your mailbox tomorrow, pulling out your key, putting it in the mailbox, opening it up, and inside, your heart skips a beat because you see a letter from the IRS. And you wonder, is this junk mail, or is this like a legitimate letter from the IRS? You open it up, and the IRS says to you, in a very kind, respectful tone, you owe Uncle Sam $500,000 in back taxes. Now, that's a pretty significant claim to make, a claim on you. Now, would you just toss that letter and ignore it? I sure hope not. At least investigate it. Well, let's say you get another letter. This letter is from a long-lost uncle who you find out is worth billions. And he claims in the letter that he's going to leave you billions when he dies. Would you ignore that letter? Would you? Would you? Of course not. <laughs> I know it's church, but that's a lot of money. I would not ignore that letter because that letter is making an astonishing claim. Billions of dollars left to you. Jesus is making astonishing claims that have significant impact on our eternity. 
Therefore, it is incredibly foolish to ignore those claims. And this crowd, they're not even willing to explore (laughs) these truth claims to their great detriment. And the claims of Christ are far more significant than the IRS's claims or a wealthy uncle's claims. Sadly, people today continue to reject Christ's claims because of ignorance. They refuse to wrestle with the classic arguments for God's existence. They refuse to wrestle with all the evidence of the resurrection. They refuse to wrestle with all the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. They refuse to wrestle with the problem of evil and really explore it from a Christian perspective. They refuse to do the work. They're comfortable in their ignorance. Don't be that person because Christ is making hugely significant claims. At least explore them. You owe it to yourself to explore them. Don't reject Jesus because of ignorance. You probably don't have all the facts. Christ was rejected because of ignorance. In addition, Christ was rejected because of his claims. Let's keep reading. Verse 43 to 45. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Why did they not want, or why did they want to arrest Jesus? Because in the last couple of chapters of John, he's been making some hugely significant claims. Like what? He claimed that belief in him is the only path to eternal life, John 3, 16. He claimed to be the long way to Messiah, John 4, 26. He claimed that he was equal with God the Father, therefore worthy of worship, John 4, 18. He claimed that he was the only one who would come back again someday and judge the entire world, John 5, 39. He claimed to be the bread of life that satisfies our souls, John 6, 25. And he claimed that we must feast on his flesh and blood to have life. And he also just claimed recently in John 7 that he's the only source of living water. Bottom line, he claimed to be God. And the Jews were committed to only worshiping one God, Yahweh. Yet Christ claimed to be God. And we know now as Christians that there is one God in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But these Jews thought that his claims were tantamount to blasphemy. So they refused to worship him. In fact, they wanted to kill him. But was he God? Consider this. One can make two lists. The first list is a list of the most influential people to ever live. Now, whenever I see these lists, and Christ is not at the top of the list, I have to laugh (laughs) because all objective evidence proves categorically that no one's been as influential in the history of the world as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Not even close. There's three new books on this, Person of Interest, Jesus Skeptic, and one's called How Christianity Changed the World. And they all argue objectively that Christ is the most influential person to ever live. That's pretty easy to prove. He's had the most followers ever. Um, There's been more books, poems, songs written about Jesus than any other person in the history of the world. Currently, our yearly calendar is based on Jesus. 
His followers have had the greatest influence on science, economics, politics, the rise and fall of nations, and anyone else in the history of the world. He's a very influential person. That's the first list. The second list are all the people that claimed to be God. Now that list is composed no, mostly of nut jobs, wackos, who had no influence at all because they were crazy. Jesus appears on both those lists. Not only did he claim to be God, but he's also the most influential person to ever live. Why was he so influential? Because he was God. That's why. History bears that claim out very persuasively. Jesus Christ was rejected because of, his, of ignorance, because of his claims. In addition, he was rejected because of intellectual pride. Look with me at John 7, 47, 49. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Said another way, the leaders are saying, why in the world are you ignorant, backwoods people believing these ridiculous claims? Don't you know? that all the really smart, credentialed scientists, philosophers, and historians deny that Jesus Christ was God. You've gotta be an idiot to believe these claims. Intellectual pride. They refused to believe because of pride. Now, how many of you have heard these things before? Only smart people, or only dumb people, believe in Christianity because there's no evidence for it. Now, in one sense, this should not surprise us, because the message of the cross is foolishness to the world, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. Christians believe that they are rescued from the power of sin and death through the crucifixion of the Son of God. That's folly to the world. Furthermore, our sin affects everything, including our minds. Theologians call this the noetic effects of sin. Sin affects how we think about evidence. In addition, people suppress the evidence about God, Romans 1, because they don't want to believe in God because they don't want to be accountable to God. So there are many reasons that people don't follow the evidence, sin, and suppressing the truth. With all that said, it's simply false that most intelligent, credentialed people reject Christianity. That's false. Consider this list of names. It's kind of a long list, but I want you to feel the weight of this. Sir Francis Bacon invented the modern scientific method. Johannes Kepler invented the laws of planetary motion. Blaise Pascal was the founder of hydrostatics and hydrodynamics. Robert, Robert Boyle was the father of modern chemistry. Neil Steno was the founder of modern geology. Sir Isaac Newton formulated the laws of gravity and motion, and he invented calculus. Carlos Linnaeus was the father of biological taxonomy. William Kirby was the father of entomology. Michael Faraday is considered the greatest experimental scientist ever. Louis Pasteur developed germ theory and pasteurization. Gregor Mendel was the father of genetics. Joseph Lister was the father of modern surgery. James Clerk Maxwell was the father of modern physics. George Lemaitre developed the Big Bang Theory. Alan Sandage is considered the greatest cosmologist of the 20th century. 
Francis Collins was the director of the NIH and the Human Genome Project. Gunter Beckley is one of the world's leading paleoentomologists. James Tour is one of the most cited chemists in the world with over 120 patents. Alvin Plantinga is one of the world's leading analytical philosophers. What do all these folks have in common? Every one of these geniuses professed faith in Christ. And these are the founders of modern science and philosophy. There's no contradiction between the claims of Jesus and science or philosophy or history. The point is simply this. It is possible to be an intellectually rigorous person and a Christian because all the evidence from science and philosophy and history and archaeology points towards Jesus, not away from him. People reject Christ because they want to reject Christ, not because they lack evidence, which means that prayer is crucial in evangelism. The issue is not a lack of evidence. The issue is a cold, stony heart that loves sin. That's the issue. So we must pray for our lost and dying friends that God would give them illumination to understand the beauty of the gospel. Maybe you're thinking, Dave, I don't reject Jesus. I actually have tremendous respect for Jesus. Which brings us to the second group of people. So first, some rejected Jesus. Second, some respected Jesus. Well, why? He was respected as a great prophet. Back to John 7:40. When they heard these words of Christ, some of the people said, "This really is the prophet." Now, in calling Christ a prophet, the people are not acknowledging that he is the divine son of God. They're simply saying that this particular person named Jesus was used mightily by God to proclaim truth. They have respect for him as a prophet, but they're not willing to worship him. And a lot of other religions have great respect for Jesus as a prophet. In fact, this week I had a conversation with a Muslim at a restaurant, and he told me that he had great respect for Jesus. But he did not believe that Jesus was the divine Son of God, equal with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus was a prophet. Make no mistake. But he was far more than a prophet. Jesus fulfilled all three Old Testament offices. He was the perfect prophet, perfect priest, and the perfect king. As the prophet, he proclaimed the words of God perfectly. As a priest, Jesus suffered and died on the cross for our sins. And right now, Jesus Christ is praying for you if you're a Christian. As a king, Jesus Christ currently rules and reigns over all things in the vast cosmos. He was a prophet, but he was far more than a prophet. He was respected as a prophet. In addition, he was respected as a great teacher. John 7, 46, the officers, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. This guy, Jesus, was a great teacher. What's happening here is the leaders send the police to go and arrest Jesus, and they come back, and they say, where's Jesus? And the police say, well, we couldn't grab him because he left us spellbound with his teaching. You should have heard this guy teach. How could we arrest him? He was an amazing orator. He had the words of life. 
so they don't arrest him. His words stunned them. And this shouldn't surprise us because Christ's teaching is truly profound. The great English writer G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, if you were in your yard or your house or your garage and you had a key and you had several different locks to choose from, and you tried this lock and it didn't work and this lock didn't work and this lock didn't work and this lock wouldn't open, that lock wouldn't open, but finally you found a lock that that particular key unlocked. If that happened, you would assume that the same person made both the lock and the key. In a similar sense, the teaching of Christ seems to fit perfectly with the human experience. In every single century in world history, some of the greatest minds have found the teachings of Jesus incredibly compelling. In every culture, in every generation, people have been amazed by his teaching. Why? His teaching on love and forgiveness and humility and service and grace seems like it was made just for the human race. It works. It's beautiful. It's compelling. But Jesus was far more than a great moral teacher. And unfortunately, some people have this crazy idea that he was a great moral teacher, but he was not God. C.S. Lewis famously responds to that particular trilemma. He writes this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He is not let that, op that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus Christ said some pretty crazy things. Like, I'm God and everyone must bow down and worship me. And if that's not true, that's not good moral teaching. That's bad moral teaching. Jesus was respected as a prophet. He was respected as a good teacher. He was also respected as a good person. Look with me at John 7, 50 to 52. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus is saying to the religious leaders, hey guys, this is not right. You're going against your own law by unjustly accusing this guy and not giving him a chance to defend himself. You're breaking the Mosaic covenant. 
the Mosaic laws, by not giving him a fair hearing. Now, at this point, it's hard to say where Nicodemus is spiritually, but it seems like at a bare minimum, he believes that Jesus Christ is a good person, at least not worthy of being condemned to death. And many, many people believe that Jesus Christ was a good person because he was a good person. He was a perfect person. One author writes that Christ is tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without any lack of confidence, holiness and unbending conviction without any lack of approachability. Unhesitating authority with no self-assertion, tremendous courage with the utmost sensitivity and tenderness of spirit. He knocks down the self-important but is incredibly winsome to the brokenhearted. No one combined virtues like Jesus. Don't you want to know this person? Jesus was a good person. He was perfect, and aren't you glad? Because none of us are perfect. We all sin in many ways, every day of our lives. Yet Christ requires from all of us perfection. One anxious thought, one stray comment, one proud thought, one angry thought is enough to separate us from God for all eternity. I woke up last night at 3.30 in the morning, worried about a child for like an hour and a half, couldn't go back to bed. That was sinful. Anxiety was robbing me of sleep. I was not trusting God. But there's really good news. Jesus was perfect, and all those who repent of their sins and put their hope and confidence in Jesus Christ will also be seen as perfect every second of your lives, as perfect and sinless and spotless as Jesus Christ himself. The moment you believe the gospel, all of Christ's perfection is credited instantly to your account, and forever you are wrapped in the robes of his righteousness. He was a good person, but he was far more than that. He was a perfect person. Jesus Christ was and is respected by many. But there'll be people in hell for all eternity who respected Jesus in this life. More is required than just respect. Which brings us to the final group of people. Some rejected Jesus, some re respected Jesus, and third, some accepted Jesus. This raises the question, accepted as what? Accepted as the Messiah. Back to the early part of, the, of our text, John 7, 41a. Others said, this is the Christ. 
After hearing Jesus teach and watching his miracles, some surmised this must be the long-awaited Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one sent by God to rescue Israel and the world from all sin, darkness, and brokenness. This must be the guy. We see him, we see his works, we see his miracles, and we accept him as God's divine anointed Messiah. And if he is the divine Messiah, he must be worshiped with every single fiber of our being 24 7. He's the Messiah. It's one thing to respect someone, quite different to worship them. And if he is the Messiah, he must be worshiped. Many people respect the Bible. They think it's historically reliable and true. They find inspiration from the Bible. They may even affirm that Jesus came to earth, died on the cross, rose from the grave, that he was God. They go to church on Sundays. They even pay for their kids to go to a private Christian school. But there is no power in their lives. Why? Could it be? that they merely respect Jesus and they have not yet accepted him as Messiah and if he is the Messiah, we must trust him and follow him no matter what it costs. They have an orthodox mind but a rebellious heart. Now imagine someone coming to your door today, knocking on your door, and you open the door, and they say, hey, good to see you again, friend, and you say, what's your name again? It's been a long time, and you say, my name is Dave Smith, or Sally Six Sinner, or Joe Sixpack, and they say to you, well, good to see you again. It's been a long time. And you say your name is Joe Sixpack or Sally Sinner. Let's stick with Sally Sinner. They say to you, they say to Sally, Sally, we want Sally to come into our house across our threshold, but we don't want Sinner to come into our house across the threshold. Or we want Dave to come into our house, but not Dave Farley to come into our house. Or we want Sarah to come into our house, but not Sarah Smith to come into our house what would you say? (laughs) But I am Dave Farley. That's who I am. You can't separate the Dave from the Farley or the Sarah from the Smith. I am Dave Farley or I am Sarah Smith or I am Joe Sixpack or Sally Sinner. You've got to receive all of me, not just part of me. For a lot of people, they respect Jesus And they want to welcome into their home Jesus the Savior, but not Jesus the Lord. They want Jesus the good moral teacher, but not Jesus the resurrected and reigning king. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to let the entire Jesus into our house, into our lives, into our homes. We can't say, Come on, Jesus, but stay outside, King. 
You can't separate Jesus. You can't divide Jesus. People want fire insurance, but they don't want lordship. They want that peaceful, easy feeling, but they don't want to be a disciple. They want to be moral, but they don't want to fully surrender. Make no mistake, being a Christian means that you say to Jesus, Jesus, I'm willing to do whatever you ask me to do, no matter how costly it may be. I'm gonna obey every single word of this book, no matter what it means for my safety, or my wealth, or my family, or my popularity, or my job. I'm gonna follow you, period, because I've accepted you as the Messiah. Now, of course, no Christian is perfect. That's why Jesus died. But a Christian is someone who says, I've made a decision to follow Jesus, to embrace every part of Jesus, no matter what it costs. And this morning, if you just want part of Jesus, you don't want Jesus. Christianity is an all or nothing proposition. You can't pick and choose. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the risen and reigning king, and he demands from everyone who's ever lived absolute loyalty and allegiance. And if your life lacks power, spiritual power, maybe it's because you're holding out on Jesus. How exciting would it be if all of us said this week, Jesus, I will do whatever you want me to do, whatever. I'll talk to that person. Okay, it'll be scary, but I'll do it. I'll forgive that person. It'll be hard, but I'll do it. I'll serve this person. I'll discipline this child. I'll give away this money. I'll move to Japan and plant a church. I'll do whatever, Jesus. Wouldn't that be exciting? It'd be kind of scary but it'd be exciting. Following Christ is never boring if you're really following him. And again, I'm not at all advocating some kind of sinless perfection this morning. All of us sin, and we will to the day we die. But the issue is this. Are we willing to follow Jesus no matter what it costs when we make mistakes? We, we say, God, forgive me, and we keep following him. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to accept Christ as the Messiah. Back to where we started. The continental divide in the Rocky Mountains divides North America. Jesus is the continental divide of humanity. He divides people into groups because of the audacious claims that he continually makes in the Gospels. Let me close with these sobering words. Like the continental divide, which immovably separates the waters of the Pacific from the Atlantic Ocean, Jesus stands eternally as the divider between the crystal sea of heaven and the sulfurous flaming lake of hell. On which side are you? The truth is that every life is flowing to one of these two eternal destinies. Jesus calls you as he called to others long ago. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Which side of the divide are you on 
this morning. Let's pray together.